My brother reminded me before the service today that our dad would be a hundred years old if he was still living. He was born in 1917, and he certainly left an impact in our lives. And we are very grateful to have had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. And those of you who have had that privilege, I would uh, probably assume that the older you get, the more thankful you are for having a Christian mom, a Christian father. We look this morning at the book of Job. We're going to take some verses from the first two chapters and then the last chapter and look at the theme of the heart cry of a Christian father. The heart cry of a Christian father. Let's bow in prayer as we begin this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you so much that we can call you our Father. What a privilege to be your children, to have that living relationship with you because of your Son, Jesus, to be heirs of yours, to be joint heirs, co-heirs with Christ, to know that we will dwell in your house forever. We will experience the glories that you have prepared for us not because of anything we have done, but because of your marvelous, your wonderful, your magnificent grace. And Lord, thank you for fathers today. Thank you for especially those who have so faithfully appointed us to you, who have taught us your word and who have lived before us, an example of footsteps that lead us to the cross. And so, Father, we pray that you would teach us now this morning as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you had lived in the land of Uz during the time of Job, you might have looked at him with a little bit of envy. If you notice in chapter 1, verse 2, it describes Job as having seven sons and three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And then this description is given of him. That man was the greatest of all the men of the East. So as far as earthly things were concerned, Job had it all. And I'm sure there were many that wished that they had what Job had. But there are a few things that Job didn't have that I really believe he wished he had. Uh, Some things that were much more important than what he did have. And knowing what kind of a man Job was, I think he would have traded all of his material possessions to have these things. What are these things? What do you think Job desired with all his heart? I would suggest to you today that there are four things a Christian father, a Christian father cries out for. First of all, a Christian father cries out for children who have a heart for God. Children who have a heart for God. As you examine what our text says about Job's children, you see a number of ways in which he was truly blessed as a father. 
For one thing, he had many children, ten of them, seven sons and three daughters. And I suppose we could say that here was a man whose quiver was full with ten children. Not as many as a man that um, we heard about a few weeks ago. His uh, obituary was in the Cocado paper. And I hope I get these numbers correct, but if not correct, pretty close. He had 16 children. He died at the age of 88. He had 121 grandchildren and 153 great-grandchildren, I think it was. Now, there's a man who had many quivers full. Just think of the... How, how do you gather together as a family when you have 16 kids and, what, 270-some, whatever, grandchildren and, and, and great-grandchildren? Well, Job had, had ten. He was blessed in that way. And besides having many children, he had children who were well cared for. They were, they were well off. Verse 4 says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And they must have gotten along pretty well. All ten of them were gathered for these times of celebration. And so, as a father, Job could have given many reasons why he was thankful for his children. But if you look at verse 5 very carefully, you will notice that Job had really had some concerns about his children. It says, When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, and notice what he said, Perhaps... My sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. It appears as if Job had at least some question about where his children stood with the Lord. And I think we could say that he longed, as every Christian father longs, for children that have a heart for God. Children that grow up to love Jesus, to serve Jesus, to live for Jesus. That's the heart cry of a Christian father. As a father, it is wonderful to know when your children succeed in school, or in sports, or in music, or in their finances. But that which encourages the heart of a Christian father the most is when your children have a desire to serve the Lord. I believe this story is accurate. When my brother Dean was at Bible camp as a young teenager, he came home and told our dad of a revival really took place at that camp, many people being saved. And as he shared that story, my dad was waiting for one thing to be said. And finally he asked, but how about, how about you? And he, Dean answered, me too, me too. That's the word that a father longs to hear. Me too. I know Jesus too. I want to live for Jesus too. That's the greatest gift that a, ch a child could give to a Christian father is that commitment to serve Jesus. 
The Apostle John, in that very familiar verse, 3 John verse 4, says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So a Christian father cries out for children who have a heart for God. A second thing a Christian father cries out for is for a wife who encourages him to trust God. A wife who encourages him to trust God. The events of Job's life are a good example that that things can change so quickly and so unexpectedly with a vengeance. And you read the story of Job in chapter 1, and you see that in one day he lost 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, 700 sheep, three. Uh, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and all 10 of his children. Now you talk about a day of disaster. It would even be hard to imagine what it would feel like to be in Job's shoes. Can you imagine that? There was a family in the upper peninsula of Michigan when my father was serving in Eben Junction. He had a funeral for 12 family members. This man's wife, her brother, and ten of his eleven children died, drowned in a boating accident, which at that time was the largest inland lake tragedy in the history of the state of Michigan. I don't know if it's changed since then. We have pictures of that, of this grave Twelve caskets lined up. And so if you're that man's pastor and you go to visit him, what do you say to him? He told my dad, he said, when I got up this morning, he said, I had a house full of children. I go to bed at night. It's like a morgue. One survived. The oldest daughter survived. She was in a different community at that time. But you talk about life changing quickly. That's what happened to Job. And one day he lost all of his possession and all of his children. And then in chapter 2, Job describes another day, probably not too long after this, when Job lost his health. Chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. If there was ever a man who needed to be spiritually encouraged, we'd have to say it was Job. And yet notice what Job's wife said to him in verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Then she tells him to curse God and die. After all that he had gone through, this was not what Job needed, was it? To have his wife tell him to curse God. God and die. What he needed was for her to put her arms around him and and pray with him. And yet she did really quite the opposite. Instead of helping him by pointing him to the Lord, she hindered him 
by trying to turn him away from the Lord. She failed to be the helper that God had created her to be. I remember a time when, I don't remember if Judy and I were married or just right after that, but I had preached at this little country church not too far from Cloquet. And those of you who are pastors can understand that times you get done preaching and you think, you know, I really, I really bombed this one. I really blew this one. All the things I could have said or should have said, you know, and, and Satan wants to attack and say, you know, you know they, they didn't get a thing out of this. And I don't remember if it was that Sunday, but there was a guy in that church one Sunday who was sitting in the front row. And while I was preaching, he was shaking his head like this. As if to say, I don't believe a word you're saying. Or this is really bombing. Or I'm not sure what he's saying. And I was discouraged. And I remember saying, you know, I'm going to seminary. I'm going to be a preacher. And I give a message like this. And I'm so glad Judy did not say, just curse God and die. (laughs) Or be a plumber. But she encouraged me. A wife who spiritually encouraged me. And man, ladies, that's what your husband needs. He needs someone to encourage him. To spiritually encourage him. To look to Jesus. To trust in Him. To live for Him. To be in His Word. To know that God has a plan for His life. The third thing a Christian father cries out for is for friends who support him in his struggle. Friends who support him in his struggle. Now, some of us men, maybe many of us, maybe most of us, we don't like people to think we struggle because, I mean, we're men, of course, right? We've kind of been taught that since we were little. Uh, When you get hurt as a little boy, what are you told? Big boys don't cry, right? Or your coach, back in the days when I played, rub a little dirt on it. Um, Get back in there. You know, put your nose in there again. And so we've kind of grown up with that misunderstanding that, you know, men are tough and men can handle it and men don't don't need any help. You know, we're we're, we're self-sufficient. We can... We can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we don't need anybody else. That's a fallacy. That is not true. We need people. We need friends. Especially when we face the challenges of life. We need to know that there are people who care about us and will be there for us when we need them. Every one of us, we need that. So when Job was sick with these boils and scraping the boils with pieces of pottery. We see in verse 11, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, the little short one, right? Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. 
And if you look at what they did when they first came, I think they were, at least for a a time, of comfort to him. When they saw him, they wept over Job. Verse 12 says they did not recognize him. That would suggest that here was a man who was in a mess physically, with all these boils from head to toe, and they came upon the scene and they thought, is this really Job? This doesn't even look like him. And they wept. They raised their voices and wept, and each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. And then verse 13 says, Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. I have come across situations as a pastor where I ask myself, what am I going to say? Maybe you're on your way to the hospital or whatever, and you're thinking, okay, Lord, what do I say? Do I have a, you know, a magical word, a magical answer? Can I just, you know, walk into the room and say a few words and everything's going to be fine? Does that how it works? That's not how it works. Sometimes, the less you say, the better off. Because the more we say, sometimes we, we put our foot in our mouth, don't we? Ever done that? I remember being at a, a visitation at a funeral home. And the man who died had gone through a lot of suffering. Died of cancer. And in walks this older gentleman who, who knew the one who had died. And I'm standing with his son. And he looks over at the casket. And he sees his friend in the casket. And he says to his son, it doesn't look like he had to suffer too much. And I thought to myself, what do you expect? Him grimacing in the casket or what? I mean, what, what, do you, what, do you, what are you thinking? And I knew what that guy had gone through, and his son was very gracious. He said, well, he had some, he had some hard days. Job's friends, for seven days and seven nights... They didn't say a thing. And I think they ministered to him because what can you say at a time like that? And we know then when they opened their mouths, they they really ceased to be of comfort to Job because they repeatedly accused him. They tried to fix his problem by claiming that he had done something wrong, that the suffering that he was going through was punishment from God, and if, he would, they would, if Job would only just confess what he had done wrong, everything would be, would be fine. When what Job really needed at a time like this was someone he could lean on. And in chapter 16, verse 2, Job describes what he felt about his friends. He called them miserable comforters. Miserable comforters are you. We don't want to be miserable comforters when people are hurting. Coming in and, you know, we've got the answer and we know why this has happened. There's got to be some sin in your life. That's a miserable 
Comforter. When his heart was crying out for someone to stand with him, they evidently were, were nowhere to be found. We need that ministry, and we need to be that ministry to people who are going through hard times. And you don't have to look very far to find people who are going through hard times. And so a Christian father cries out for friends who support him in struggle. But then we come to the end of the book and we see a fourth lesson here. A Christian father cries out for a Savior whom he can know intimately. A Savior whom he can know intimately. After seven days of silence... Job and his friends began a debate. A theological debate that lasted for about 35 chapters. Job's friends kept telling him over and over again that he must have sinned. And they were not very diplomatic about it. If you read through it, you'll see that very clear. They crucified him with their words. (laughs) They were hard on him. And Job is responding to his friends as they bring their accusations that it's not because he sinned that he is suffering. He's puzzled. He doesn't understand what's, what's happening in his life. And, and he's asking God in the midst of this as well. And it, and it just seems like God is silent. Ever had that experience before? We're going through a struggle and you're asking, Lord, why am I facing this? And it's like, there's no answer. That's what Job was going through. But then in chapter 38, God breaks the silence and speaks. And it is very interesting to notice what he says. God doesn't tell Job why he is suffering. But rather, he powerfully reveals to Job his majesty and his glory. He tells Job that there are things that that he doesn't know, that only God knows. He asks him questions like, "Where, where, where were you, Job, when I created the heavens and the earth? Well, Job would have, I wasn't there, okay. And all of these statements and questions were to bring Job to the place where he realized that God is God and he is not. And there may be questions that, that Job won't get an answer for. And for some of us, that's frustrating, isn't it? Because we want answers. We want to know why. Sometimes we might know. Maybe down the road it might become clear to us. Maybe it never will be. But we want answers. And Job didn't really get an answer. But something happened in his relationship with God. Through his suffering, he had come to know the Lord more intimately than he had before. And that's what made a difference in Job's life. Look at chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. 
and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. And Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. I'm not sure all that it means when Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. But it seems to suggest that that something had happened in, in Job's relationship with God where he was drawn closer to him. I, I, I heard you, but now now I see you. Now I see you. And that made a difference in his life. And often through the, the struggles of life, we are drawn into a more intimate relationship with the Lord, aren't we? Because when life is, is, seems to be easy, and when there aren't these challenges and struggles in our life, it is very easy for us to, what, become self-sufficient, to think that, you know, life is good. But struggles, don't they have a way of, of, of showing us how desperately we need the Lord? And we are drawn into a more intimate relationship with Jesus. We need to know Him intimately. As fathers, that's, isn't that our, our greatest need? To have an intimate relationship with Jesus. We need to know Him in a personal way because that's where it all begins, really, isn't it? That's where it all begins in, in terms of being the kind of husband and father and grandfather and whatever we are that we need to be. Evangelist Gypsy Smith tells of trying to push his way through a crowd in the north of Scotland as he was preaching there. And he felt a little tug on his coat sleeve. At first he thought, well, this is just a crowd. You know, of course, you're going to feel people rubbing up against you. But he looked down and there was this little girl, a little Scottish girl, holding on to his coat sleeve. She was dressed in, in ragged clothing, and, and she was holding in her hand something wrapped in tissue paper. It was moist and grimy from the clutch of her little fingers. You know how kids are sometimes when they give you a piece of candy and you grab it and it's all sticky. You wonder, you know, had they been sucking on it? It was in their nose, or where was it, you know? And they had to hear, you know, eat it. So he says, what is it, my dear? And she said, I want you to have my candy. And Gypsy Smith said, well, well, why? And she said, oh, sir, because we got a new daddy in our home. 
He's never been sober till Saturday. We've never known him to be sober. But he was at your meeting last Saturday. And oh, it's so wonderful now at home. We got a new daddy in our home. And it's wonderful. That's what makes a home wonderful. When there's a new daddy or a new mommy. When there's moms and dads that have that life-changing, transforming, living relationship with Jesus because Jesus is the one who makes a home wonderful. Not perfect. There is no perfect home. Mine included. There is no perfect home. But with Jesus, it can be wonderful. Because He's the one who can give children a heart for God. He's the one who can help a wife to encourage her husband. He's the one who can help friends to be a support in time of need. And Jesus is the key to an intimate relationship with the Father. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. So, on this Father's Day, do you know Jesus, dads? Do you have that living relationship with Him? Would your children say, my dad knows Jesus? I see it in the way he lives. If not, you need Jesus today. That's where it all begins. When Jesus makes you a new creature. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. That's when our homes will be wonderful. Not perfect, but wonderful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our fathers here today. Lord, would you bless them? Would you strengthen them? Would you encourage them? Would you give them children that have a heart for you? Would you give them a wife that encourages them spiritually? Would you give them friends, Father, who help them in the challenges of life? And most importantly, Lord, would you give them that living, intimate, growing relationship with you? Lord, thank you for who you are and all that you've done for us. Do your work, Father, in our midst this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.